Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Do you wish you knew the saints better? Overwhelmed with all the events in Catholic history and just wish you could tie it all together? It's tough work, and even scientists have determined that it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain. Unless it is done with play, in which case it takes between 10 and 20 repetitions. Introducing Saint Cards, where the facts about saints and history are presented in fun and engaging games for ages 4 to 104. Check out Saint Cards at saintcards.com and begin the fun for your family, school, and parish today. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. Welcome to Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the 16th episode and the penultimate episode. In these final two episodes, Belloc considers William of Orange the Protestant king of England and his counterpart the French king Louis XIV. In these two episodes, he winds up the great battle of the Reformation, seeing that Europe is divided firmly between Protestant and Catholic. William of Orange. William of Orange is the last but one of the typical figures of the great 17th century drawn battle between advancing Protestantism and Catholic resistance. There were many Williams in this family, and more than one have the title of Orange. But when one talks of William of Orange, without additional words, one generally means this particular William of Orange who became, so far as the rich men of England could make him, the King of England at the end of the 17th century. On the Protestant side of the battle he corresponds to, though a man of far less importance, the Catholic Louis XIV. He stands for the successful Protestant resistance, which caused the battle to be a drawn one, just as Louis XIV, his contemporary, stands for the later declining, but still most powerful Catholic tradition in the west of Europe. William of Orange, typical of the Protestant side of the drawn battle, is typical in every way. To begin with, he is typical of the way in which the great leaders who made the survival of Protestantism possible and secured its further expansion were not, as had been the early zealots of the Reformation, men chiefly occupied with religion. These were men chiefly occupied with money, with political power, and to an almost equal, sometimes to greater extent, the great personal income to be derived from political power. 
They were not men chiefly marked for their enthusiasm against the Catholic creed and practice, but rather marked for their determination to establish their independence from the old unity of Europe, and men who depended for their power upon wealth. The way in which William III came into the great quarrel was as follows. The family, of which he was the head, was the ancient family of the Counts of Nassau, Nassau being the name of a town and a medieval government, district, or county in the western part of Germany. These Counts of Nassau had been the officials governing the district, and their power had become hereditary and feudal. William, therefore, was the representative of a family something like a thousand years old in Europe. He counted among the very ancient and high nobility of Western Europe. This family of Nassau had married one of their women to the feudal chief of the town and district of Orange, on the Rhone, near Avignon, France, just about the time when the Reformation was beginning to stir, that is, shortly after 1500. The last prince of Orange, in the regular line, died childless in the years when Henry VIII of England was agitating for his divorce, and when the Reformation in Germany was beginning to strike deep roots. He left his lordship of Orange by will to his nephew of Nassau, and thence onwards the family of Nassau, or rather the successive heads of that family, were called the Princes of Orange. As yet, they were only important, ancient, and fairly wealthy nobles of that old feudal sort who were becoming modern local rulers. But one of them, who came immediately after, who was called William the Silent, happened to fall heir to several very large fortunes which all concentrated upon himself. As quite a young man, he was already one of the richest men in Europe and had a corresponding power in the politics of his day. This William, Count of Nassau, was born a little before Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn, and died, assassinated, a little before the failure of the Spanish Armada. He was, roughly speaking, a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth. This elder William of Nassau, Prince of Orange, has obtained in history the name William the Silent. Now, let us see how that name arose. As a very young man, he had been a sort of hostage at the French court to ensure the carrying out of a treaty between the King of France and the Emperor Charles V. Many years afterwards, when he had abandoned the Catholic religion and was in full rebellion against his legitimate sovereign, he brought out a cock-and-bull story to the effect that during his youth at the French court, the King had confided to him a plot for massacring all Protestants. He himself, William, boasted that on hearing this terrible news he had been horrified, but had cunningly kept silent, and he gave it to be understood that it required no small courage and intelligence for a youth of his years to have acted so discreetly under the circumstances. The story William thus told long after in later life is an obvious falsehood. He had, not a, he had said not a word about it between the supposed time of its taking place and the moment when, according to his account, he chose to release it. That a powerful king would have had confided such a vital state secret to a lad is even less credible than the story of the plot itself. However, the times were fanatical. Almost anything was believed by one side against the other. William was astute, and he got away with it. This William the Silent, being the wealthiest and most important subject in the Netherlands, was tempted to take the lead in rebellion against the lawful government of those countries. And the lawful government was that of Philip II of Spain. 
But there were two troubles. The first, much the most important, was the outbreak of the great religious rebellion against Catholicism, which led to rioting and fighting between reformers and Catholics all over the west of Europe. The second was the fact that the great kingships of the day were tending to become absolute and to neglect the local liberties. Now, the great trading towns of the Netherlands enjoyed a large measure of self-government. They were jealous of any encroachment upon this, and when the religious revolution broke out, the fact that the king of Spain stood for the old Catholic tradition made it natural that those who feared for their local political liberties should in many cases flirt with the new revolutionary Protestant ideas. And this they did. In other words, a considerable number of the principal merchants of the rich men in the towns of the Netherlands took up Calvinism, and this new religion was also avowedly the religion of those who had broken out in the riots and looting of church property, including the accompaniments of murder and torture. The tortures which the revolutionaries had inflicted upon the monks were particularly horrible. The regular government of Philip II, therefore, set out to suppress these disorders in the Netherlands, but it needed money for the task. The money which had been sent for the paying of the troops was held up in the English ports on its way from Spain by the man who governed England in the name of Elizabeth, William Cecil. The government of the Netherlands was therefore forced to levy a special tax to replace the money. The tax was intensely unpopular, and armed revolt broke out all over the country. This was the opportunity for the rich men who wanted to make political capital out of the troubles and increase their income at the same time. Therefore, the multimillionaire William the Silent appeared as the chief name in the rebellion. For a long time, he hesitated to abandon Catholicism. But it seemed, upon the whole, the card to play. For though the rebellion was not mainly religious, but mainly political and economic, Calvinism was in part the driving power behind it. Philip II, King of Spain, to whom and to whose family William had owed everything, outlawed William the Silent, and a Catholic zealot shot and killed him in the year 1584. After that, the ruling family of Orange, Nassau, remained always the typical leaders. The second son of William, the Silent, was a great soldier in the struggle of the Calvinist merchants of the northern Netherlands against Spain, and when things settled down in the middle of the 17th century, more than 60 years after William the Silent's assassination, a younger son of his was the chief man in Holland, which had by this time become practically independent of Spain. The son of this chief man, whose name again was William, married the Princess Mary of England, the sister of King Charles II. He died in November 1650. And just after his death, his wife bore the son who was again christened William, and he became known in English history as William III, William of Nassau, Prince of Orange, and King of England. The child born under such strange circumstances grew up of a mixed sort. He was not without energy, though it was of a morose and silent kind. He had a strong aquiline nose, piercing eyes, and his dwarfish body, suffering from poor health and later from asthma, was not without vigor, but he was sullen and vicious. He was in general detested by those who came closest in contact with him, except for his favorites, whom he loaded with gifts and who were in some unknown degree partners in his vices. The first of these was a certain Bentink, a man of good family. When it came to marriage, 
he had the good fortune to get a wife of his first cousin, Mary Stuart, grandchild like himself, to Charles I of England, and daughter of James, Duke of York, who was later to be King James II of England. This marriage was intrigued for, perhaps reluctantly, but at any rate decisively, by Charles II, who was King of England at the time, and who wanted to keep a foot in both camps, Catholic and Protestant. There were no children of that marriage. But the extreme importance of the marriage lay in this, that the wife this young William of Orange had married was the next in line to the throne of England at the time when her father, James II, should succeed his brother, Charles II. This Mary, William's wife, had been brought up as a Protestant, as a piece of statecraft insisted upon by Charles II, her uncle, who was the reigning king during her girlhood. He hoped thus to save the dynasty by counteracting the effect of his brother's conversion to Catholicism. Mary's mother, Anne Hyde, the daughter of Lord Clarendon, a woman of strong character and intelligence, had been converted to Catholicism, and she had brought over her husband, James, Duke of York, Mary's father, who was the immediate heir to Charles II. By the time James, the brother of Charles II, became king, his wife, Anne Hyde, was dead. There was no boy to inherit the kingdom after James II died, and James II's second wife, Mary of Modena, was of bad health and had lost her children. It was believed she would have no more. And when this Catholic king, James II, came to rule, it was over in England which was by this time Protestant, as to the great majority of its inhabitants, and as to a large minority of those inhabitants violently anti-Catholic. Yet, even those who most disliked the idea of the Catholic James being king over the country, and who had intrigued against his succession, were half prepared to accept him, because they took it for granted that he would be succeeded by his Protestant daughter Mary, the Princess of Orange, who was married to William. Not only was she a Protestant, but she was married to the man who was regarded as one of the leaders of the Protestant cause in the continent of Europe. It was in 1685 that James II had become English king. The discontent of the active Protestant minority led to rebellions in Scotland and in the South, but they were easily put down. That in the South had been led by an illegitimate son of James II's brother, King Charles II. This illegitimate son was called the Duke of Monmouth. But when Monmouth's rebellion had been put down and Monmouth himself executed, there remained for those who believed that Monmouth had been legitimate no leader of the Protestant cause, no one whom they could regard as a possible substitute for James II except his daughter, Mary, and her husband, James's son-in-law, William of Orange. The whole thing was mixed up with the now-determined policy of the rich English families to take over the government of the country, and in their own selfish interest to destroy what was left of the power of the crown. They would far rather have had a new king who would owe his nominal title to them than to have the legitimate King James who had behind him the full traditions of monarchy. But to these traditions, the masses of the English people were still strongly attached, and the wealthier classes who desired to get rid of the king and take over the government for themselves, could not openly upset the principle of monarchy in the face of popular opposition. It would be their object, I repeat, to have someone called king who should replace James II, but they would take care that this new king should have no real power and should be their servant. 
So things stood until, in the fourth year of James' succession, unexpected by everyone, a son was born to him, and the child lived. That changed everything. A Catholic king, surrounded by many Catholic advisors and friends, one determined to preserve royal power and insisting upon religious toleration, had now an heir who would be brought up a Catholic, and who ousted his Protestant half-sister Mary, Princess of Orange, hitherto the natural successor to her father. But those who were determined to get rid of James were not disarmed by this misfortune which had befallen them. There followed a series of the worst plots, conspiracies, and falsehoods in English history, a perfect orgy of lying, cheating, and betrayal. William of Orange sent over to England an illegitimate relative of his who had married an English wife, giving him a special message to congratulate James on the birth of an heir, and at the same time to intrigue secretly with anyone he could get hold of for turning James out and the newborn child with him. William of Orange further began to intrigue in Holland for the support of the Dutch. He began to try to raise money from the Dutch bankers on the securities of the taxes which his backers would have if he were made king, and he would then impose on the English. While he was doing this, he protested in the loudest manner his loyalty to his father-in-law James, and continued to proclaim that loyalty until the very hour that he sailed with a large expedition to invade James's kingdom and claim the crown for himself. James had a considerable army with which to defend his throne, but the officers were drawn from the landed classes who were conspiring against him and were ready to betray their king. William's force landed in Devonshire. It was made up of mercenary soldiers drawn from every country with only a few Englishmen among them. It was an invasion, a foreign invasion. There was no battle because just when the issue would have been joined, James was betrayed. The leader of those who betrayed him was John Churchill, later Duke of Marlborough, whose career as a soldier James himself had made. The Prince of Orange marched on London. The Dutch guards occupied the western part of the city and appeared before the palace. James was thrown out, and the rich men who had helped William of Orange made him their king. After long negotiations, he and his wife were declared equal partners, king and queen, side by side, so that the reign of the usurper is now officially known as that of William and Mary, and this coup d'etat is known as the Glorious Revolution. Politically, the thing was a complete revolution, that is, an illegal, unconstitutional act of force by which a legitimate government is supplanted. The English hereditary monarchy was disposed of, and a new, unheard-of title called Parliamentary Title was substituted for the right of birth. The legitimate king, James II, escaped and lived on in France, protected by the King of France, his cousin, Louis XIV. He attempted to get back his throne with the help of the French king, both through an Irish land campaign and then through a maritime invasion across the Channel, but he failed in both enterprises, and he died at the beginning of the next century, within a few months of the son-in-law who had betrayed and dethroned him, and some time after the unnatural daughter who had aided her husband in such a desperate act. The claim of the legitimate Stuart line was not given up, but their Catholicism was a fatal bar to the restoration, and they died out within a century, their attempts to regain the throne all proving futile. In this way, the work of the Reformation in England was accomplished. What had been when James II was betrayed an active minority of the nation dwindled to an insignificant handful of Catholics. 
Within one long lifetime, by 1760, the practicing Catholics had fallen to less than 1% of the population. What was perhaps more important, the non-practicing penumbra of sympathizers with Catholicism had disappeared. The link with the old national religion was broken forever, and when the Catholic Church began to flourish again in England, it flourished as a foreign thing, inspired first by French and later by Irish and Italian immigrants. In the great drawn battle of the 17th century, of which England had been one of the principal fields, the decision, so far as England was concerned, was complete. The Protestant cause had completely won, more completely by far than in any other country in Europe, and with that victory the name of the perverted William of Orange, though he was but a servant and a tool throughout, will always be associated. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic health care ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthCare.com slash podcast. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com slash podcast.